well to come with the greatest of sobriety and seriousness and intentionality to hear and heed what he has said. So with that in our hearts, open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. If you don't know where Malachi is, it's the last book in your Old Testament. So maybe start with Matthew and just start moving backwards. You'll find it. Don't go too far because it's not a very big book. So you might skip right over it. Malachi chapter 1. One commentator, as he talked about the Minor Prophets, said that his study of the Minor Prophets has convinced him that their main purpose is to put before us three attributes of our great God. The first being his sovereignty. When you read in the Minor Prophets, you see the overwhelming control of God over all things. Every nation in the world is under the clear direction of this sovereign God. And every nation in the world for all time and all eternity will be under the clear direction of the sovereign God, and and namely his nation, the nation of Israel, as the Minor Prophets make so clear. The second aspect of the character and nature of God made so obvious in the Minor Prophets is that of his holiness, of which we sung this morning, that he is a God not to be thought little of or to be brought down to our size, but a God who takes his word and his commands and his covenants seriously and who has the power and the authority and the ability to handle those who don't. He is holy. And the third aspect of God's character that this commentator brings out in the Minor Prophets is that of his love. That because he is a God of love, he, in his holy sovereignty, guarantees the finality of his promises. Having made promises to his people, he guarantees it through the prophets that it will happen. His love will not fail or fall short. We come to Malachi this morning and all three of those things are in this book over and over and over again. You might say that the theme of this small book is the unchanging God and his unstable people. And that is so very true, not just for the people of Israel that Malachi was addressing, but for our own hearts. The key verse in the small book, you could maybe say, is chapter 3 and verse 6, where the Lord says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It's a book about God and how he intends in his unchanging, holy, sovereign love, to keep his promises to his people, even in all of their instability. You see, the people of God give God plenty of reasons to move on, don't they? To be done with them and and to find a better lot, a different people to love, a different people to care about. We give God plenty of reasons to let us go with our own choices and the consequences those choices bring. But God is an unchanging, covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Therefore, as he says in this book, his love never fails. And yet, his people fail to remember that his love never fails. We fail to bring to mind the reality of his faithfulness. And we often forget the many expressions of that love as seen so constantly in our lives. His steadfast love made new and made known every day. 
And when we forget this, it, it often leads to us questioning God, right? We put God in the witness stand in our minds and in our hearts, and we wonder, where is God on this? Does he care? Does he love me? This is the tension we see all throughout this small book. We're just like these people. We know that God has promised his love. We've seen that he's done this in the past. But in our our current moment, we flounder in faith because we don't feel very loved. Maybe today you feel a little bit more loved than yesterday. But wait, Monday's coming, right? Something will set you off kilter in your emotions, in your affections, in your own experience, and you'll wonder, does God love me? Does God care? Where is he? Why hasn't he acted yet? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the evil in the world get all the success and all the glory and all the fame? Why do they get the easy road? Why do those who just want to know and love the Lord seem to have the hardest path? We set ourselves to questioning God. You remember Job, obviously. He was probably the first book written in the Scriptures, and it's a story, you know, of a man who lost everything but his life, and that was near to being lost. He lost it through horrific tragedy, and we know that he lost it because God gave him over to Satan to test his faith. And you remember that he responded in worship in the moment of his tragedy, and in the the long reality of his suffering, he had three friends who joined him, and there's much to be commended about how they sat with him for seven days and didn't say a thing. They just sat there, and then they started talking. They probably should have just sat there, but they start talking and they start asking questions and essentially accusing Job of what have you done to cause this trial and tragedy. And as Job defends himself throughout the book, you see he weaves through his defense questions about God and God's love for him. Beloved, that's in the scriptures for your instruction. That's a mirror for your heart. Because this is what we do with God when things are tough. But then you remember in, in Job's book, in chapter 38, God shows up. And God brings his voice to the conversation. You remember how he handles it. And, and I think this is a loving confrontation. It's easy to read in an angry voice. I don't think we should. I think we should read it in a loving, sovereign, holy voice. And he essentially turns the tables on Job and he says in love with a string of questions, were were you there when I put all this together? Were you there when I formed Leviathan who can crush you with his tail? Or were you there when I put the mountains in place and formed the oceans? Do you know Job? And he just goes through all of these questions and and the, the message among others of the book of Job is that in our trials and afflictions, it's not God who's on trial. It's not God who's to be questioned. It's we who are being tested and examined. 
we come to a similar situation now at the end of the Old Testament. So that was the beginning of the Old Testament. Now I think, instructively, the Old Testament bookends with the same idea. The children of Israel are in a hard spot. At least they think they are. The reality is they've been restored to the promised land. They've, they've been brought back by God to the land of their forefathers. And you remember why they had to be brought back. During the time of the kings, they had brought in a bunch of idolatry and worshipped other false gods on the high places. And all kinds of horrific false worship abounded in the land. And God told them through his prophets, Elijah and Elisha, you keep doing this. You're going to face the judgment of God. You're going to know the curses of God from Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And they continued in their path. And sure enough, God in love disciplined his son and brought the Babylonian conquest and carried them off into exile, into captivity. God prophesied of that captivity through Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then he had his own prophets experience that captivity, men like Daniel and Ezekiel. And then God graciously, after the 70 years he said they would be in exile, started bringing them back. And he even used a, a pagan king, an ungodly king, Cyrus, to, to make a decree and say, they will go back and, and we will support them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so gradually, 50,000 or so Jews made their way back to the promised land. And as they do, you remember, they slowly start to rebuild through the ministry of men like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. They eventually saw the temple rebuilt. And then after many uh, a much a length of time, then the walls of Jerusalem were restored and rebuilt. And the priesthood then was restored. Its ministry in the temple was renewed before God. And once again, God's people were in God's place worshiping him according to his command. And during that time, you remember that God sent prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, Haggai to say, you know, you're, you're paneling your own houses, but you're letting the house of God not be rebuilt. Get with it. Do what you've been sent back to do. And then through Zechariah, he called them to prepare for when the temple was finished, to have hearts ready to worship in this renewed temple because it's not about a building. It's about worshiping in spirit and truth in the Old Testament just as it is in the New. And so Zechariah prophetically says to them, get your hearts ready for that day. And in Zechariah's prophecy specifically, he gives them constant uh, foreshadowing prophecies of a coming messianic age. He tells them of a, a son of David who's going to come and, and when he comes, he's going to come and rule with a, a rod of iron and with a, a sword of justice. He's going to rule from Jerusalem. He's going to bring rampant peace and prosperity to God's people that will span the globe. And so through the mouth of Zechariah, the prophecy given by the Lord, the people of Israel restored to the land are expecting a Messiah. They're expecting a, a promised golden age when the promised golden sun appears. Well, here they are now about 100 years later. And really nothing's changed. The city is up and going. Worship in the temple is moving along. But these significant messianic prophecies have not come to be. 
And so God prompts Malachi to write to them and to challenge them. The walls of Jerusalem have just recently been completed through the ministry of Nehemiah. It's hard to know exactly where Malachi fits. I think he fits when when, uh, Nehemiah goes back to Assyria and Malachi steps in as the voice of God to continue and encourage and exhort them. They have similar concerns in their book, as you'll see as we go through Malachi, but the walls were recently finished, but yet their king has not yet come. In fact, they're still ruled by a foreign power. We read about that in chapter 1, verse 8, where it talks about they honor their governor. So they're still under the thumb of a foreign power. And they're wondering, what is going on? Why are we not seeing the fulfillment of God's promises? And here's the the lesson for you this morning. As they waited for God to fulfill His promises, they were lured into spiritual carelessness. They were lulled to sleep, you might say. They they were going through the motions of external worship in the temple, but they were bringing sacrifices that were blind and, and lame and corrupted animals. Their priests were ministering in the temple as they were supposed to be, but they were teaching with a, a bent towards getting the right things to the right people. They, they were teaching, the, the text says, with an ear to lead people astray, a, a, an idea to lead people astray for their own good. The men of Israel who were gathered back in the land were, were not honoring their covenant marriage to the wife of their youth. But they were getting tired of their wife, just like they were getting tired of waiting for God. And so they were divorcing their wives, and then they were marrying foreign women. Something new and something exciting in their minds. And all the while, their crops are failing because of drought and, and because of plague, and they're wondering why. And God tells them in this book, the reason why is because you're withholding your tithes and your offerings. You're not worshiping me as you are commanded to do. And yet they turn this to think that God has abandoned them. In fact, they question God and they say, don't you care that evil and wicked nations are thriving and yet we are hurting and barely eking out an existence? In chapter 3, verse 6, we'll read of how they're practicing, some among them are practicing sorcery and committing adultery and swearing falsely and oppressing hired workers by not paying them the wages they deserve and oppressing widows and the fatherless and casting aside the sojourner and generally just not fearing the Lord. They're in a bad state, spiritually speaking, before God. And yet, in it all, through Malachi, we learn that they're basically wondering, where are you, God? Don't you love us, God? Don't you care about us? Aren't you going to fulfill your promises to us? And so God sends his prophet Malachi to speak to them. That's what we see right away in verse 1, where it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. An oracle is another word for a, a heavy burden or a heavy weight. It's something that Malachi can't get rid of himself. It's it's something he can't avoid but to proclaim. And it's a burden from the Lord through the mouth of his prophet. We know almost nothing about Malachi. In fact, the only thing we know is in this book. And there's really no personal biographical information about the prophet in this book. We know his name and that's it. And his name means my messenger. He's not referenced in any other book. He addresses similar things to Nehemiah, so we 
assume he served at the same time or around the same time Nehemiah did. But his message isn't wrapped up in his life like Jeremiah's was or like Hosea's was. Rather, he is the mouthpiece for the Lord for such a time as this. And it's a, a burden on him and he brings a heavy message. It's a message of confrontation and rebuke. But you'll notice as we go through the book that it's a message that's well-crafted. Obviously, by God, it's going to be well-crafted. But it's crafted in such a helpful way to address the problems of the people's hearts. God employs almost the Socratic method before Socrates ever invented it and draws them out with questions and says, here's the reality, but here's what you say about it. And then he answers their question with the truth. You'll see that pattern throughout the book. You'll see it especially in our text this morning. Let me continue reading in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we don't understand all of how you use the preaching of the word to nourish and build the faith of your church. But we believe what you've said and what you've commanded. We trust your word to be living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We believe all parts of your word to be breathed out by you and therefore profitable for our instruction and for our correction, for our living lives that would please and honor and worship you. We also believe your word to point us to your son and to make him more known to us. So we pray that you would exposit this text by your spirit to our hearts and our minds. Help us, Father, not just to receive knowledge of what this text says and means, but help us, Father, to be changed and transformed, renewed, from the inside out by the work of your spirit through the preaching of your word. We confess this cannot happen without your spirit's work and by your power. So we plead with you to that end. May you receive all the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I trust you saw the pattern in these first five verses of God making a statement of his love for them in verse two. And then Malachi anticipates and lays out the people's response. How is it? that the Lord has loved us. To which then the Lord responds with questions and answers, points them to the reality of his love for them. He's going to use that method again in chapter 1 to, to draw out the reality of their polluted sacrifices by the priests. In chapter 2, he's going to confront their immoral practices in marriage through the same method. In chapter 3, he's going to confront their sinful withholding of the tithe and how that is bringing about the lack of crops in their lives. But here he starts with the core issue. In fact, that is 
so helpful for us as we approach the book of Malachi to understand that he starts with that which is most important. All these other issues that he's going to confront in his book come out of this issue. They have lost sight of the love of God for them. And because they were unconvinced of God's love for them, they were loveless in their relationship for God. And this is our plight as well. When we are unconvinced of the great love of our God for us, we begin to question His love for us. And when that happens, we become spiritually endangered. We start to make decisions and grow in affections and feelings which lure us away from Christ, reducing our love for God. So Malachi writes to encourage them with the love of God. And so I do the same this morning, calling you to be compelled by, captured by the love of God with with fresh eyes of faith. We should be captured by God's love declared in verse 2. God just says it like it is. He just tells them in verse 2, I have loved you. This is my oracle to you through my prophet. This is how I want you to start out in understanding me, your God. I have loved you. He could have stopped the book right there. That is everything. If God has loved them, then what else matters? He states it as a simple fact. This is the the last voice of God in the Old Testament times through His last prophet to His people. It will go another 400 plus years until another prophet shows up. He is, you know, the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, and He'll come as one crying out in the wilderness with the voice of God. Malachi's voice is the last one until John the Baptist, and he starts with this clear statement. This unbreakable, undeniable, unending, unchanging truth. God says to His covenant people, I have loved you. He says it in the perfect tense in Hebrew, which just simply means it's it's ongoing, unchanging. It, it, it cannot be undone. You see, God did not at one time love them, but then stop loving them. He did not at one time not love them and then choose to love them, but might choose to not love them again. No, this is a, a settled reality. Yahweh says to His people, I have... I do, and I always will, love you. It's not a love dependent on circumstances. It's not a love driven by emotions or attraction or affection. It's not a love of a moment or even the love of a lifetime. And I've just described all of the love you and I basically know in our human experience. This is not a love conditioned upon the behaviors and actions of God's people for what they can do for God. This is a declared and unending love. It's unconditional, flowing from the character and essence of God Himself. It's a love of His own choosing. He has set His heart and His mind upon this people, Abraham's descendants and Jacob's children, and He's made them His people. He's called them by 
his name and he's made them his own. And he says to them, I have loved you. He's entered into an unending, unchangeable covenant bond with them. And now as he confronts them and calls them to repentant faith, before he ever says, you are doing this wrong, he says to them, I have loved you. And since it's an unchanging and unending love, then is it not also an undoubtable love? If it's an everlasting love, then then isn't it a love that can't be called into question? So the delay of God's promises being fulfilled cannot call into question the love of an unchangeable covenant bond spoken by God, right? The strange contours and twists and turns of the providence of God with His people in a wicked world cannot call into question His declared, unending, unchangeable love, right? The blows of His bitter providences that set us back and take our breath away and set us into a season of mourning and grief we're not sure we're ever going to get out of. Even those cannot call into question His everlasting, undoubtable, unchangeable, declared love. Right? Right. This is why God says to the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. This is why the psalmist thought it was a good idea to write one song about this big idea. It's a song of five lines. It says this, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That's Psalm 117. The centerpiece of that declaration of God's praise is His declared love. Unending, unchanging Almighty, the God of heaven has said, I love you. It's also a love explained. That's in verse 2. Our hearts should be compelled by that thought that God declares, I have loved you. But beyond that, he, He goes further and He explains His love. And that explanation comes in reply to the questioning of His people. Beloved, as hard as it is for us to walk through the difficult providences of God in this world, and we ask all the hard questions of, does God love me? You must know that your hardest questions can be handled by this God of unchanging love. God says it to be true, unalterably so. I have loved you. And yet our perception of things calls into question the thing God has said. That's That's so very human, isn't it? We struggle with this, right? Tell me I'm not the only one. Just because God has said it doesn't mean I'm automatically always constantly going to believe it with perfect faith. No, my faith is going to falter and I'm going to stumble and trip up and fall flat on my face over and over again and I'm going to question God and say, really? Is that really what you meant? Is that really true, Lord? 
And that's what they're doing here. Lord, do you really love us? How, how have you loved us? Really, have you looked at our circumstances, Lord? We're eking out an existence here in your so-called promised land. Your city, Jerusalem, is a shell of its former self. The temple is a, a pathetic copy of Solomon's former glorious temple. You sent your prophet telling us of our glory days and it feels like anything but. We're still under the thumb of a foreign ruler. How have you loved us? How can this be true? And so God answers their question. He explains their love. And to do this, he takes them back over a thousand years in their history to the time of the patriarchs. And this so often is our problem when we're questioning God as we have a short-sighted perspective. But we're looking in the last five minutes or the last five months or the last five years or the last five decades when in reality we need to be looking at the totality of God's work in the world for all time. And we will know for sure when we do that that God is a God of love. He points them back to their beginnings. He says, hey, listen, there once were two brothers, twin brothers to be exact, and when they were in the womb, I chose one over the other. And the one I chose was the younger one, and I even revealed to his mother before they were born that I was going to choose the younger one, and the older was going to serve the younger. And this was going to be according to my sovereign choice and my divine will, according to my unique purposes. And that's what this post-exilic generation that's in the promised land but wrestling with the love of God, that's what they're pointed to by God's prophet. Hey, think back to when God chose Jacob over Esau. This is how he assures them of his love for them. Well, why there? Why go there? Because it's obvious from the beginning that the selection of Jacob over Esau had absolutely nothing to do with the condition of these men. It had nothing to do with who they were or even who they would become. Neither Jacob nor Esau deserved to be loved by God. But God set his love on one. One was not more worthy of God's love than the other, but God chose that one to pour His grace and eternal love out upon. This is what Paul explains in Romans 9, verses 10 to 13, where he says, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul quotes Malachi 1 to prove the point that God's love set upon Jacob is an unconditional, unalterable, unchangeable love decreed by the God of heaven by his own good pleasure, for his own good purposes. And it's an unalterable unconditional, electing love. So, brother or sister, if God has set His love on you, it is not because you are more lovely than someone else in Newton, Kansas or someone else in your family 
It is because God in his mercy has chosen to love you. And this again puts his love in an undoubtable realm. You see, if his love for me is based on my performance or my obedience or my faith, then by all means, you should doubt the love of God. Because you will bring the love of God into question if it is conditioned on you. But if this love was based upon God's character and God's choice, then it is an unquestionable love. It's a love that never ends, dependent on the covenant faithfulness of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. We who are beneficiaries of the new covenant in Christ know this to be true in Romans 8, where Paul says to you, if you're in Christ, then who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Isn't that the question in Malachi? They're feeling separated from the love of God. Now under the new covenant blessings, Paul's saying, if you're in Christ, you can't be separated from His love. And he goes through the litany. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I don't think I face much of any of those things. But I stub my toe in life and I'm like, God, do you love me or what? There's people who are being martyred for the faith and he's saying not even that can separate them from the love of God in Christ. He goes on to say, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors because we've so loved God. Because we've had such great faith in God. Because we've been so lovely to God. Because we've walked so well before God. No! We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even your worst day can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. Not even that day when you question Him to the core of your being and you wonder where is He? Does He care? Is He even real today? Not even that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the Lord doesn't stop there. He's declared His love. He's explained His love. And now He displays His love in verses 3 through 4. He continues the history lesson. And he, he lays it out for them. He displays it to them. And He does that by contrasting the love of God for Jacob and the hatred of God for Esau. And it's a contrast of God's electing love. So God has chosen to love one and thereby has chosen not to love another. And so Malachi, the prophet, given the oracle by God, says, I loved Jacob, I hated Esau. God did not make a covenant with both men. He made a covenant with Jacob, and he passed on the Abrahamic covenant blessings to one son through Isaac and then through Jacob, not through Jacob and Esau. And this electing love pours out grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy upon Jacob and his descendants, and it, it doesn't do that with Esau. Now, in a general sense, Esau and his descendants knew the grace of God, the, the general overflow of the kindness of God which rules in the world. But he gave Esau and his descendants over to their own wickedness. 
in a Romans 1 kind of way. And that's why Hebrews 12 describes Esau as an unholy and immoral man. This is why Jacob and, or excuse me, Isaac and Rebekah were appalled at Esau's choices in who he married. He was living in unholy immorality. This is why they sent the chosen son, the loved son, away to Laban, his uncle, to find a godly wife within their bloodstream, within the people of promise. Esau is a man dominated by the lust of his flesh and brought upon himself and his descendants complete and total disaster. Now Malachi is writing a thousand, over a thousand years after that, and he's saying to them, look, look back. Trace how the love of God has been lavished on you, Jacob's children, and not on Esau and his children. Most notably, he points them to the recent ravaging of Edom by a foreign power. Edom is the, the nation that comes out of Esau. It lies to the south and east of Judah. And recently, the, the prophecies of the other minor prophets had come to fruition. And now Edom lay in ruins. It was a, a place left to the jackals, as verse 3 says. And God says, compare yourselves to them. You're back in the land. Your walls are rebuilt. Your temple's rebuilt. Worship is restored. I'm with you. I'm here. I sent my prophet to you. Look at Edom. They've got nothing. They're destitute and downcast. Their land is a desert wasteland fit only for jackals. It's exactly what God said He would do through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Amos and the whole book of Obadiah. You see, Edom was the, the longest standing enemy of the children of Israel. The most persistent and consistent one against God's people. And God said persistently and consistently through His prophets, Edom is going to have a judgment day. They're going to have a day of reckoning for how they have treated my people. David Levy in his commentary gives seven reasons why this judgment comes upon Esau's descendants. He reminds us that way back in the day, they didn't let Moses and the children of Israel pass through their territory. You remember that? When they're on the way to the promised land. He reminds us how Edom also, in their hatred for Israel, went to war with Israel's kings. He reminds us that, that Edom did not help nor intervene when other nations came against Judah. They didn't stand up for their brothers. And actually, worse than that, they, they stood by and they celebrated when Judah was attacked by other wicked foreign powers. And not only that, but after Jerusalem got destroyed, Edom went in and took the spoils of war. Basically danced on the grave of Judah, if you will. And God took notice and said, this will not go unpunished. Not only that, but they set up roadblocks to keep the Jewish people from fleeing their attackers. And then when they caught them, they delivered them over to their enemies. You see, they, they were walking in their unloved condition. They were not loved by God, and it showed in how they lived and how they treated those loved by God. And at this point in Malachi's day, that judgment had already come. And so he says to them, look to your south and see the reality of the nation of Edom. And listen, they might say they're going to rebuild, but you must know if they rebuild, I'm going to tear it down. And when they do, you'll see it and you'll know that I am God Almighty. 
This is fitting with what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, isn't it? Remember the Abrahamic covenant given to Abraham and his physical descendants for time and eternity? He says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what Edom did and this is what Edom reaped from God. And now God says, see my love for you. You've been given safe passage back from the land of your exile. The temple is rebuilt. The walls are restored. See my love for you. Yes, there's still more to be fulfilled, but know that I am guiding and protecting you. Know my love. Lastly, he intends to compel them with the love of God by having his love understood in verse 5. He wants their hearts to be captured as they understand the goodness and love of God. As they thrive in their homeland because of God's love for them, and they see their blood relatives, the Edomites, cursed and hated by God, and their land lays desolate. God says, I want you to know this isn't going to change. And you're going to see my ongoing hatred, and you're going to see that I will tear down what they build. And you will say, in verse 5, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Malachi intends to capture the children of Israel with the great love of God for them. Seen in the obvious comparison between them and the other nations, but more than that, he intends to show them God's electing love that extends beyond the borders of the nation of Israel. He's going to deal with the wickedness of rebellious peoples, not just Edom, but all rebellious peoples. And in judgment, he also is going to extend grace and mercy and love to all people. And this is the the glory of the New Testament message. As the gospel explodes through the church, we see that it's not just for Jews. God's chosen people, but it's for people beyond their borders. People of every tribe and nation and tongue around the world. To make them God's own through His own electing love. And this is to be understood by God's people to give glory and credit to God alone. Friends, we like to take the electing love of God and make it a point of controversy, don't we? We like to argue, I trust in a Christian brotherly way, about how this works out. What does this mean? What what does Romans 9 mean? By all means, let's, let's have those conversations in Christian love for each other. And let's point each other to the text and Talk about what does it mean that, that God chose us before the foundation of the world? And how does that, how does that interact with the, the will of man as a responsible being before a divine God? Let's have those conversations. But we miss the point if we think election is just a point of controversy. Every time it's brought up in Scripture, it's for the point of comfort. God talks about it to encourage you to settle you in His love. To convince you that from before time and eternity, from before He ever spoke a word of creation, He set His love on you. And so whatever it is that today is causing you to doubt His love for you, He is 
clearly saying to you, my electing love is unalterable and unchanging, everlasting and eternal, and therefore is unquestionable. And because it's unquestionable, then we ought, in resting in his love, love him in return. I don't know what else you could do. Not love him so he will love you, but because he has loved you, how can you not love him back? And that's the issue in Malachi. They weren't loving God like they should. Therefore, they weren't keeping his law like they were supposed to. And that's our problem when we start looking at our circumstances and we start doubting the good love of God for us. We wane in our love for him. And so have your heart captured once again this morning with the love of God for you. God has declared his love for you. One example is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He's declared it to be so. Not only has he declared it, but then he's explained it and demonstrated it. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But for a, a good man, would one dare to die? But for most anyone else, no one would even offer their life to die for them. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, he gave his son for us and justified us through his son. You see, you can look at lots of events and circumstances and realities in your life and question the love of God for you, but you need only turn your attention to one historic and have the issue settled, and that obviously is the cross of Calvary. Seeing there the Son of God taking upon Himself your sin, your suffering, and your condemnation, knowing that if God has loved you in that way, then how could He not also with Him give you all things, as Paul says in Romans 8.31. So we find ourselves this morning wandering through a barren wasteland of sin and destruction in a world that hates God and is opposed to Him. We long for the fulfillment of the promises of paradise and of eternal life to be fully and finally true. We seek a city that's heavenly. We're, we're strangers in this world longing for a different one. And while we wait, we can easily lose focus, get distracted, and lose our love for God and find ourselves bound up in Doubting Castle with giant despair ruling over us with his bully club, beating us back into submission and keeping us entrenched in his cellar. And we have wrapped around our neck, as Christian did in Pilgrim's Progress, the key which unlocks every door to free us and let us continue this journey of faith. And the key is the gospel hope of Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again for us. And we can go forward in confidence that God has loved us because he has made known to us through his son that he has loved us. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you, you've heard of this love, but you don't know this loving God through Christ. You need not go another moment without having this God's love given to you through His Son. Run to Jesus in faith, believing that He is all that you need 
for the forgiveness of your sins and peace with the God of heaven and life everlasting and rest eternally in his love, his finished and full work. Brother, sister, we ought learn from the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 5, which by the way is his letter at his hardest point in life. Things were not going well. Promises had not yet been fulfilled for him. Things did not look good in ministry for Paul when he penned this letter to the Corinthians. He was ravaged and beaten and shipwrecked and wondering if he could even live another day. Despairing of life itself, he says. In the middle of the book, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. As our hearts are captured with the love of God this morning for us, may we in turn love him. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you for your clear word and work in our hearts through this text. Thank you for the prophet who is faithful to proclaim your word as a burden from you. We ask that you would help us to be convinced of your love for us yet again. And help us then to pursue walking in the assurance of that love. Resting in and rejoicing in all that you've done to save our souls. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.